Tonight I would like to speak about compassion, the arising of compassion in our hearts, what allows for its development, and what blocks it from arising. Compassion arises in us from the awareness of suffering. It's the response of an open heart to the experience of suffering. When we can be open, when we can feel, when we can be sensitive to the suffering that exists, the spontaneous response of that openness is the feeling of compassion. Where do we find suffering? We find it all around us. It's quite obvious when we look, when we open our minds. We see it in the world outside. See it due to political causes. We see economic exploitation and suffering see tremendous social injustice, we see religious intolerance, we see suffering between people, interpersonal suffering, even among people who are close to one another. There are so many conditions of the world which there's an immense amount of sorrow I just came across something I'd like to read to you. One of the reasons that we often are not open to compassion is because the suffering is of such a magnitude that it is beyond our imagination. We find it difficult to keep in our minds. This is This was something written about the suffering of hunger in the world. Imagine then for a moment almost the entire population of California or Canada or of every third person in England or France dying slowly and painfully and preventably within a single year. The entire population of California or Canada or every third person in England or France. Then imagine this scene repeated year after year after year. And imagine around every person who dies another 30 who are hungry and malnourished. And at last you have some sense of the true magnitude of suffering caused by hunger. And that's, that's what's actually going on now in, the, in our world. In one example, in one arena, there's the suffering that Michelle spoke of the other night, symbolized by the heavenly messengers of old age and disease and death. Considering that it's such a pervasive aspect of experience, considering that compassion arises in this field of suffering or as a response to suffering, we could then ask, why is it that the world is not a more compassionate place? And if compassion is the response of an open heart to the experience of suffering, and there is so much of it, why is the world, why are we not more compassionate? So when we look and investigate that question, we see that It's often because our hearts are not open 
we're not willing to experience or to feel the pain or the suffering that exists. We close off and we defend ourselves from feeling it. We create all kinds of resistance. So to see that movement in our hearts and in our minds, to see that movement away from pain, away from suffering, because that movement away from it is that which stops the wellspring of compassion, stops up that wellspring from arising within us. In order to unblock it, in order to undam the spring of compassion, we have to begin to see how the resistances are created in our minds, what kind of resistance we develop, and the things we feel resistance towards. Because if we can see that and understand it, then it becomes possible to let go. What do we have resistance to? And on a retreat, these kinds of resistances become very obvious. It's the stuff that we're working with day after day. One of the most obvious areas of resistance is the resistance to painful feeling or painful sensations. We don't like it. We don't like to open to it. It's difficult. It takes a huge effort to open to the feeling of pain. And the mind has devised all ways, all kinds of ways, of avoiding it. You know, sometimes we give pain the sidelong glance, as if we're looking at it out of the corner of our eye, hoping it will go away. We don't have to look at it directly. Or we bargain with it. And I'll watch you for the next ten minutes if you'll go away. <laughs> and that's not open. That's not opening. That's just a more subtle or not so subtle kind of resistance. You can reflect how how is it possible for us to really feel compassion for the pain of somebody else if we cannot feel compassion for our own pain. If we can't open to it, if we can't feel it, if we're condemning and closed and resistant, it's that same attitude which is going to carry over in our relationship to pain outside of ourselves. And so in our practice, we begin to open the heart to allow it in, to allow the feeling of hurt, the feeling of pain. Because out of that openness, compassion will arise. We have resistance to physical pain. We have resistance to different kinds of mental or psychological or emotional pain. In the same way that we've been conditioned to close off to these intensely painful bodily feelings, we've also closed off to a whole range of unpleasant or painful emotions. Certain feelings which are not okay to have, they're not acceptable. It's what <coughs> the psychologist Carl Jung called the shadow, the shadow side of the mind. You know, all those darker, more unpleasant factors or qualities or emotions in the mind. There are many, and there are many different levels, and we each have our own particular ones that we find it very difficult to open to. As an example of some of the kinds of feelings, the shadow feelings that we resist, that we close off to. For some people, it may be feelings of loneliness, or unworthiness, that those feelings become so painful to feel that we resist and we create a barricade 
so that we don't let them in. We don't have to feel them. Or perhaps some people have problems with feeling boredom or feeling restlessness. It becomes so painful. We so don't want to experience it that we close off, we tighten, we resist, we push them away. Or sadness. And the path of practice is to see how this resistance, resistance to these shadow feelings, shadow side of the mind, really splits us and fragments us. Because this is part, these feelings or emotions are part of who we are. They're part of the totality of who we are. And it's possible in the same way that we can soften into pain, that we can soften into the acceptance of these different mind states, these different emotions. And you see that it becomes so much easier to feel loneliness and to allow it to be there and to see its arising and passing than to spend a lifetime resisting it or driven by the desire to avoid it. How much of our lives is spent trying to avoid certain feelings, driven by the desire to avoid In exactly the same way as we have to open to these feelings in ourselves to allow compassion for the suffering of them, to feel the suffering of them, we must do it in ourselves before we will be able to feel that compassion for that very same suffering in other people. Because if we're condemning it in ourselves or have aversion towards it in ourselves, that same aversion and condemnation in different ways, conditions how we relate to those feelings in other people. And it blocks compassion, blocks that connectedness. We have resistance to pain, we have resistance to certain feelings, unpleasant emotions. We have resistance to certain kinds of situations, situations that we find ourselves in that are unpleasant for one reason or another and we, we close off or we block them. This is an example of this. It, it happened quite a while ago, but it illustrates quite well the situation. When I, when I had first come back from India and was teaching at Naropa Institute, the very first year it opened in 1974, it's just a little more than 10 years ago now, they gave me this small one-bedroom apartment to live in while I was teaching. And I was teaching a lot of classes. It was starting very early in the morning, and many classes, many people. So I was, I was quite busy, come back very tired. Over that summer, it was a summer that many of my friends from India also started returning to America, Sharon among them. And having, they having been in India for a while, came back to the States, didn't know where to go. Let's visit Joseph in Boulder, a nice place to spend the summer. And it was great. You know, and they started coming back and staying in my apartment. And it was one person and two people and five people, ten people. <laughs> it's like it just became this, this magnet for a readjustment center. After a while, it, quite, it got quite intense because it was a small one-bedroom apartment, you know, and all these people were living, and there was no, no privacy, no quiet space, and I was getting more and more upset. And I was really resisting. I was feeling this tremendous resistance to that situation, but I was, in a, I was really in a bind because they were all close friends, and I had a lot of love for them, on one hand, <laughs> and on the other hand, <laughs> I wanted them to leave. 
so I was, didn't quite know what to do about that. Finally, just one day, as I was you know, working with the situation and the resistance I felt and the, the suffering that I was in because of the resistance, something clicked or flipped in my mind. And what I saw was that so much of that resistance to the situation came from my attachment to a certain concept I was holding, namely the concept that it was my apartment. And I had this idea in my mind that it was my apartment and these people were coming in even though they were close friends and invading my space. It was difficult. As soon as I let go of that idea that it was my apartment and it became just a space which we were sharing, which we had done countless times in India, much more crowded than than the apartment in Boulder. As soon as I let go of the attachment, the resistance to the situation fell away and the suffering from the circumstances fell away. And it just became another example of how attachment to an idea or a concept very often creates suffering for ourselves. So to see how resistance is formed to these kind of life situations, that we're not willing for one reason or another, whether it's attachment to a concept or for some other reason, we're not willing to accept, we're not willing to be with, we're pushing away. We don't let in the discomfort and so we struggle. There's resistance to pain, resistance to certain unpleasant emotions or feelings, resistance to situations, resistance to difficult people. Have you ever been with a person that you just can't stand? (laughs) You know, their energy drives you crazy. You're with them and with the best intention, you just cannot tolerate it very interesting to see what's going on at that time when we're with somebody who causes that amount of uh, resistance in us, an uptightness in us, where we cannot bear to be with them, where we feel tremendous aversion towards them, the old Vipassana vendetta. If you look carefully at what's happening, you can begin to see that there are different levels of relating to people. One level is relating to the personality conditioning and to the kind of energy that they're putting out. And often, depending on you know, different of our conditioning, often it's very abrasive or difficult or obnoxious. And what happens when we're confronted with that kind of abrasive or difficult energy is we resist it. We try to push it back. We don't want to let it in. And so we get into this real conflict. There's another level underneath that, underneath the personality level. And if we're able to look very carefully, the next time you happen to be in that situation where somebody is driving you crazy, by how they're acting, which often is in unskillful ways. See if it's possible to drop down beneath the personality level, the the level of the action that's being done, and to look very carefully or as sensitively as possible at the whole being. See if it's possible to let that person in instead of resisting. If we can open, instead of simply fighting back or pushing back, very often we see that that difficult behavior or that abrasive, obnoxious behavior is coming out of tremendous pain. 
Why do people do things that are difficult or harmful or unskillful? Because of tremendous personal suffering. But we so don't want to let it in, we so don't want to feel it, that we keep pushing back on their energy. Keep pushing them back. If we can drop to the level of feeling their suffering, of feeling their pain, it's quite amazing how our resistance is transformed into compassion. Instead of resisting their behavior, we feel compassion for their suffering. And it all has to do with how open we can be. It doesn't have to do with any change on their part. So that's another area to look at and to see how our mind creates resistance to feeling pain or suffering, in this case, the pain coming from another person, and how it closes us off and closes down the compassion to see that it's possible to open. So we resist pain, we resist certain feelings or emotions, certain situations, certain people. There's another kind of resistance which also becomes apparent in an intensive retreat, although it's manifest in many different ways in our lives. It's the resistance that we feel as we become more tuned to the momentary transiency of phenomena, just the ephemeral quality of existence, of experience, the fact that it's just constantly arising and dissolving, that there's no substance, there's no place of security, and it's constantly vanishing. As we tune into that more and more, often the mind doesn't like it. It tries to desperately hold on to different things for security. And that resistance to this truth of change, this truth of impermanence on all levels doesn't allow us to surrender to this flow of change. It causes us to close, to tighten, to resist, to barricade, to defend. And again, our hearts get closed. And as our hearts get closed, The compassion has no outlet. So for compassion to arise, and to arise not just in isolated cases, but to really allow this quality of compassion, which is in us all, it's a quality of our minds, a quality of our hearts, to allow it to arise, to develop and grow strong, what we must do is learn to open to the entire range of human experience. To open ourselves to the pain and to the suffering and to the joys so that we can feel it in ourselves. Compassion is the spontaneous response of a heart that's open. I'd like to read a couple of poems by Ryo Khan, who's an old Japanese Zen hermit monk. He lived many, many years as this poor wandering monk living under bridges and in deserted huts in the forest and in the mountains. And he wrote this wonderful poetry expressing expressing the quality of openness that he had developed in the face of a wide range of circumstances. He was really open to the to the breadth of what it means to be human and what it means to be alive. These are a few of the poems that uh, he wrote. Light sleep, the bane of old age, 
Dozing off, evening dreams, waking again. The fire in the hearth flickers, and all night a steady rain. Now is the time to share my feelings, but there is no one. The vicissitudes of this world are like the movements of the clouds. Fifty years of life are nothing but one long dream. Sparse rain. In my desolate hermitage at night, quietly I clutch my robe and lean against the empty window. The autumn nights have lengthened and the world has begun to penetrate my mattress. The cold has begun to penetrate my mattress. My sixtieth year is near, yet there is no one to take pity on this weak old body. The rain has finally stopped, and now just a thin stream trickles from the roof. All night the incessant cry of insects, wide awake, unable to sleep. Leaning on my pillow, I watch the pure bright rays of sunrise. I like these poems so much because there's there's such an openness to the range of feeling, to the loneliness, to the desolation, to the emptiness, to old age and the pains and discomfort and cold, and to the pure bright rays of sunrise. There's this appreciation and sensitivity and receptivity to this progression or sequence of experience that we go through in life. And it's out of that openness that compassionate feeling and compassionate action arises. So then why don't we open to this range of experience? And as we hear it, it sounds like a nice thing to do. And if we can open to the pain and open to the suffering in ourselves and in other people, we connect. We feel the compassion. What keeps us closed? Why do we keep strengthening our resistances? It's because of ignorance. And in this sense, the word in English is a very appropriate one. And it's ignorance coming from ignoring. Ignoring, not paying attention. Not paying attention to how things actually are. And out of that ignoring comes a tremendous delusion that we live in. And this delusion, which comes from ignoring what is actually true, This delusion is that happiness lies in the experience of pleasurable feelings. This is the delusion we live in. That if we can experience enough pleasurable feelings, then we'll be happy. Craving in the mind is this hunger for pleasurable feeling. And as long as we're living in this delusion, we stay bound to this craving, looking for pleasant feeling, avoiding unpleasant feeling, because we think that it's in that where we will find our happiness. More pleasure avoid what's unpleasant, avoid what's suffering. So as long as we believe that, as long as we buy into that, we resist all the kinds of suffering that exists in the world, and so our compassion is closed off. This craving comes from ignoring 
When we begin to pay attention, we begin to see that actually our happiness does not lie in pleasurable feeling. That's not, that's not where happiness is to be found. And this is not a question of, you know, reading it or hearing it and either believing it or not believing it. It's really a question for each of us to look in our lives, in our practice, in our experience, moment to moment, to see for ourselves. One of the things that we all know very well is that pleasurable feeling is very transitory. It comes and we experience it and it goes. And how many times, how many billions of mind moments of pleasurable feeling have we had? Countless, countless times in our lives. And yet we are still left with this feeling of incompleteness or not being whole or not being at peace. If pleasurable feeling could bring that to us, none of you would be here. I wouldn't be here. <laughs> because we would, have, we would have found what we were looking for. But we've done that, and we've done it so many times. So we have that wisdom, we have that understanding someplace deep in us. But we don't often remember it. And so we keep looking for the next hit of pleasant feeling or the next avoidance of unpleasantness, forgetting that in no way does our happiness depend on that. That's not the place. That's not the arena. It's not the domain of happiness. It's not the domain of peace. And there's an interesting subversion which takes place as long as we're in this delusion of thinking that more pleasure and avoidance of pain is what brings us happiness. There's an interesting subversion of compassion. Because compassion has a near enemy. And in the Buddhist psychology, the near enemy of states means a quality of mind that's like compassion but is actually unwholesome. And the near enemy of compassion is sorrow or pity. This gets very interesting to look at because sorrow or pity is born out of ignorance and compassion is born out of wisdom. Sorrow or pity has an element of aversion in it. Sorrow or pity is when we feel some kind of aversion towards the suffering, either in ourselves or other people. And that aversion creates an unskillful, unwholesome state of mind. In compassion, there's no aversion. There's a feeling, there's an empathetic feeling It's what Trungpa Rinpoche called basic warmth. There's a feeling of connectedness because we allow the suffering in. We allow the hurt in. We allow the pain in. If there's aversion, we are not allowing it in. In some way, we're keeping it outside of ourselves. We're condemning. And as long as we live in the delusion that happiness comes from craving pleasant feeling and avoiding unpleasant, for so long as we live in that delusion, we will not be feeling compassion. We will be feeling sorrow and pity mingled with aversion. We can transform this ignorance, we can transform this delusion into wisdom when we understand in ourselves and in our own experience that happiness is not to be found 
in having another another moment of pleasant feeling or avoiding a moment of unpleasant feeling, when we understand that happiness lies not in reaching out and holding on, but in letting go, in opening, in being willing to experience the whole range of what comes to us in our human lives. And there's pain and there's suffering and there's joy and there's pleasure. Can we be open? Can we be equally open to everything that arises? Because it's that transformation of understanding which really opens or unblocks the wellspring of compassion within us. When our energy is not bound up in craving and resistance, and we see when we watch our minds and watch our hearts how much of the time it is, but as we begin to soften and to open, to be willing to be with the suffering, the pain, the joy, the happiness, It's that which allows compassion to start arising for the suffering that exists in ourselves and in other people. What's the manifestation of this compassion as it begins to arise, as we begin to emerge from the cloud of delusion of misunderstanding where happiness is to be found. And as we begin to soften, to soften into the whole range of experience, to soften our hearts, to make it more receptive and open, and as compassion starts to come out of that openness, how do we find it manifesting? In ourselves, with other people, in the world. One very useful thing to remember, I think, is not to have models of how it should manifest. Because often we, we hold models or hold ideas in our mind that a compassionate person should be such and such a way. And again, that limits us not to create a self-image of compassion, but to let it flow in an easy way, in a natural way we see that the whole world becomes a field of compassion precisely because there is so much suffering. So wherever we turn, it becomes a place for this compassion to arise in us. One very interesting area to consider with respect to compassion and our opening in the world. Now, often we can feel a tremendous compassion for people who are suffering a lot, apparent suffering, and hunger or disease, you know, or exploitation. It's not as easy to feel compassion for those we feel who are perpetrating that suffering, the people who are greedy and hateful, the people in power who may be the cause of a lot of this suffering. How compassionate can we feel for for them? Can we realize, can we remember that unskillful action, unwholesome action, harmful action comes out of ignorance, comes out of suffering, comes out of pain, and because of the ignorance, it only creates more pain for the person doing it. Can we drop down beneath the level of the action to the level of the suffering and pain that's there and feel compassion for those people too? Now, I understand that recently the Dalai Lama was on a uh, TV show with uh, William Buckley. And I didn't see it, but I, I got reports of you know, the interview. And evidently, William Buckley had a hard time 
comprehending that the Dalai Lama could feel compassion for the Chinese you know, who invaded Tibet. And it was just inconceivable you know, that, that there could be compassion for those people who, who perpetrated so much suffering you know, on his land and on his people. And as I'm told, the Dalai Lama just patted his hand and said, be patient and you'll understand. (laughs) (laughs) Really, the possibility, the possibility for compassion really is boundless. And in, in the Buddhist psychology, along with loving kindness and joy and equanimity, they're known as the boundless states because it's possible to develop it when we understand when we understand what what brings it about and also what limits it in ourselves we can see that if we can if we can let in if we can accept if we can allow the suffering and rather than resist it or push it push it out or retreat from it that more and more our compassion becomes boundless even for people who may be hurting us or harming us, because we see their suffering, we feel their suffering. It was this quality of compassion which motivated the Buddha to spend lifetimes cultivating the perfections of mind which brought about Buddhahood or that complete awakening and motivated him to begin teaching. Often when people would come to the Buddha and ask him what he taught, just the, the essence, the bottom line of what he taught, he would respond, I teach suffering and the end of suffering. That's what the practice is about. To realize, to realize the truth of suffering and to realize the end of suffering. But we can only do the latter when we open to the former. We have to open to it and out of that openness comes compassion, comes great freedom. I'd like to close by reading something that is another kind of manifestation of compassion. Uh, This reflects a wonderful quality of sensitivity and refinement of perception that comes about through our practice. This was written by a a medical doctor at Yale. On the bulletin board in the front hall of the hospital where I work, there appeared an announcement. Yeshi Dondin, it read, will make rounds at 6 o'clock on the morning of June 10th. The particulars were then given, followed by a notation. Yeshi Dondin is personal physician to the Dalai Lama. Thus on the morning of June 10th, I joined the clutch of white coats waiting in the small conference room adjacent to the ward selected for the rounds. The air in the room is heavy with ill-concealed doubt and suspicion of bamboozlement. (laughs) At precisely six o'clock, he materializes, a short, golden, barrelly man dressed in a sleeveless robe of saffron and maroon. His scalp is shaven, and the only visible hair is a scanty black line above each hooded eye. He bows in greeting while his young interpreter makes the introduction. Yeshi Dondin, we are told, will examine a patient selected by a member of the staff. The diagnosis is as unknown to him, to Yeshi Dondin, as it is to us. The examination of the patient will take place in our presence. 
after which we will reconvene in the conference room where Yeshi Dundon will discuss the case. We are further informed that for the past two hours, Yeshi Dundon has purified himself by bathing, fasting, and prayer. I, having breakfasted well, <laughs> performed only the most brief of ablutions and given no thought at all to my soul, glanced furtively at my fellows. <laughs> Suddenly we seem a soiled and uncouth lot. <laughs> the patient had been awakened early and told that she was to be examined by a foreign doctor and had been asked to produce a fresh specimen of urine. So when we enter the room, the woman shows no surprise. She has long ago taken on the mixture of compliance and resignation that is the face of chronic illness. This was to be but another in an endless series of tests and examinations. Yeshidon then steps to the bedside while the rest stand apart watching. For a long time he gazes at the woman favoring no part of her body with his eyes, but seeming to fix his glance at a place just above her form. I too study her. No physical sign nor obvious symptom give a clue as to the nature of her illness. At last he takes her hand, raising it in both of her own, both of his own. Now he bends over the bed in a kind of crouching stance, his head drawn down into the collar of his robe. His eyes are closed as he feels for her pulse. In a moment he has found the spot, and for the next half hour he remains thus, suspended above the patient like some exotic golden bird with folded wings, holding the pulse of the woman beneath his fingers, cradling her hand in his, All the power of the man seems to have been drawn down into this one purpose. It is palpation of the pulse raised to the state of ritual. From the foot of the bed where I stand, it is though he and the patient have entered a special place of isolation, of apartness, about which a vacancy hovers, and across which no violation is possible. After a moment, the woman rests back upon her pillow. From time to time, she raises her head to look at the strange figure above her, then sinks back once more. I cannot see their hands joined in a correspondence that is exclusive, intimate, his fingertips receiving the voice of her sick body through the rhythm and the throb she offers at her wrist. All at once I am envious, not of him, not of Yeshi Dundin, for his gift of beauty and holiness, but of her. I want to be held like that, touched so, received. And I know that I, who have palpated a hundred pulses, have not felt a single one. At last, Yeshi Dondon straightens, gently places the woman's hand upon the bed, and steps back. The interpreter produces a small wooden bowl and two sticks. Yeshi Dondon pours a portion of the urine specimen into the bowl and proceeds to whip the liquid with the two sticks. This he does for several minutes until a foam is raised. Then, bowing above the bowl, he inhales the odor three times. He sets down the bowl and turns to leave. All this while, he has not uttered a single word. As he nears the door, the woman raises her head and calls out to him in a voice at once urgent and serene. Thank you, doctor, she says, and touches with her other hand the place he had held on her wrist, as though to recapture something that had visited there. Yeshidondon turns back for a moment to gaze at her, 
then steps into the corridor. Rounds are at an end. We are seated once more in the conference room. Yeshidonin speaks now for the first time in soft Tibetan sounds that I have never heard before. He has barely begun when the young interpreter begins to translate, the two voices continuing in tandem, a bilingual fugue, the one chasing the other. It is like the chanting of monks. Yeshidonin speaks of winds coursing through the body of the woman, currents that break against barriers, eddying. These vortices are in the blood, he says, the last spendings of an imperfect heart. Between the chambers of her heart, long, long before she was born, a wind had come and blown open a deep gate that must never be opened. Through it charged the full waters of her river as the mountain stream cascades in the springtime, battering, knocking loose the land and flooding her breath. Thus he speaks and is silent. May we now have the diagnosis, a professor asks. The Western doctor who is hosting these rounds, the man who knows, answers. Congenital heart disease, he says. Interventricular septal defect with resultant heart failure. A gateway in the heart, I think, that must not be opened. Through it charge the full waters that flood her breath. So here then is the doctor listening to the sounds of the body to which the rest of us are deaf. Now and then it happens as I make my own rounds that I hear the sounds of his voice like an ancient Buddhist prayer. It's meaning long since forgotten, only the music remaining. Then a jubilation possesses me and I feel myself touched by something divine. It's this sensitivity, this receptivity, and this warmth and this compassion that we are developing in our practice. In every moment that we can be present, that we can be open fully to what's happening in that moment, this is the quality, this is the refinement that is growing. And in this way, we begin to see that the development of awareness and the development of compassion are inextricably intermingled. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.